Welcome back to episode two in points of discussion. Should JAK inhibitors be considered for first-line therapy in the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in children? Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program presenters. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or the program presenters, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. If you haven't listened to episode one, please go back and do so. The episode provides an overview of JAK inhibitors, and the panel discusses JAK inhibitors versus traditional first-line therapies. This is episode two, JAK inhibitors versus biologics. Your moderator for this discussion is Dr. Minnelli Liu. Dr. Liu is a practicing pediatric dermatologist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She's the co-director of the Vascular Anomalies Center and is Associate Professor of Clinical Dermatology at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. She is also the co-chair for PEDRA's Atopic Dermatitis Psoriasis Focus Study Group. Now I'll turn it over to Dr. Liu. Thank you, Jen, for the introduction. Um, And we're very excited today to have our panel of speakers. We have four wonderful speakers tonight. Dr. Powler is the chair of the Department of Dermatology, Walter J. Hamlin Professor of Dermatology, and Professor of Pediatrics at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also a co-founding member of PEDRA and co-chair of PEDRA's Atopic Dermatitis and Psoriasis Focus Study Group. It's Amy Powler. Dr. Kirkorian is a practicing pediatric dermatologist and chief of dermatology at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. She also serves on PEDRA's meetings committee. Hi, it's Yasmin Kirkorian. Dr. Siegfried is a pediatric dermatologist Professor of Pediatrics and Dermatology at St. Louis University School of Medicine. She is also a co-founding member of PEDRA and currently serves on PEDRA's nominating committee. Hi, it's Elaine Siegfried. And last but not least is Dr. Yu, who is a pediatric dermatologist, Director of Contact and Occupational Dermatology, and Assistant Professor of Adult and Pediatric Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Yu also serves on several PEDRA committees. Hi, it's Jeff Yu. How about dupilumab versus an oral JAK inhibitor? Would a JAK inhibitor be your second line for your dupilumab patients who have an insufficient response? Or are there patients for whom it would be your first line? There are a lot of questions there. Uh, And and if you're asking um, what I would use first line, I would still be using dupilumab first line. It's got a safety profile that we really can't beat easily because there's been so little toxicity associated with it. Uh, And I think the major problem that we've had with dupilumab is that it is injectable. Uh, And with newer injectables coming out as alternatives, which is great, none of them are gonna get past that needle phobia that is so common, even in the teenagers who now will have an option of of the JAK inhibitors and, and, moving forward, other, other biologics as well. So there are patients who are needle phobic, there are adults who are needle phobic. And I think uh, in those individuals, sometimes we just have to go to uh, an oral and we'd have to be talking about that. 
I've, I've had situations with younger children where the needle phobia is a huge problem with dupilumab to the point that we, we just can't, can't handle it uh, very effectively, whether they're in the office or uh, have somebody at home who may even be a nurse who's, who's trying to administer the medication. Um, on the other hand, there are a few other reasons why I would potentially discuss with a family the value of starting with a JAK inhibitor. Now you mentioned dupe failure, and of course, uh, dupe failure is either going to take us in a realm of, of moving towards a different biologic, especially as those become more available for uh, adolescents. We don't have that yet. Um, or, or the JAK inhibitors, and the only one so far that's been approved is, is the apatacitinib, as you mentioned. Um, I think that one thing to consider is that some people just have very short flares, but they're terrible flares. And they're being treated right now, especially by people who are not pediatric dermatologists with steroids, with systemic steroids. Uh, and if we could substitute treating for a short period of time with an oral medication that instead was a JAK inhibitor, we might feel better about that for the short term. Um, there are some people who have seasonal disease they only have it in the middle of the summer. And so they're not gonna be on long-term. It is easier to stop and start with its very short half-life, the JAK inhibitors, than something like dupilumab. Uh, and even though we really haven't seen issues with anti-drug antibodies uh, with dupilumab, I think there's still that baggage from the TNF inhibitors of worrying about stopping and starting and stopping and starting. Um, and, and so that remains to be seen, but it may certainly be something to consider. The other group that I would uh, be considering for uh, potentially starting a JAK inhibitor early is those who also have another disorder that is going to be amenable to JAK inhibitor therapy. I would say that about 70% of my patients with alopecia areata have um, atopic dermatitis or have had a history of atopic dermatitis just from my polling of my own patients. Uh, most of them have relatively milder atopic dermatitis are not people I'm going to put on dupilumab already. However, if they've got pretty significant alopecia areata or certainly heading towards alopecia totalis or universalis, um, and certainly with what we know, about the JAK inhibitors and what I've seen as well with limited experience, uh, that might be a patient that I might just try to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, and put them on a JAK inhibitor also for their atopic dermatitis. We know that if we stop it, their hair also is likely to come out at some point thereafter. So this is gonna be a long-term situation that the, the family has to understand. And it might be the same thing for vitiligo or lupus or, or rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, I think still it would be largely the most severe patients that I would consider for a JAK inhibitor just because they may do a little bit better. They may have a little bit of an edge in terms of efficacy with a JAK inhibitor, um, even versus DUPI, and then the various other scenarios that we talked about. And again, every one of these scenarios would be presented with the benefits and certainly with the potential risks, and it becomes shared decision-making. There's, there's one other group that uh, it, it, it strikes me that may be better candidates for JAK inhibitors than for DUPI, and those are the kids who have a, 
had a history of severe conjunctivitis. You know, I, I have hardly had any experience with severe conjunctivitis in kids on doobie, but I recently had one patient who, you know, suffered so badly that we had to get him off the doobie. And, but I think you can predict that. And in this patient, as well as, you know, all the other ones, you know, in the literature, if you have a history of conjunctivitis, you're more likely to be that among that 10% on dupilumab that gets conjunctivitis. And so you can you can sometimes, you know, predict that a little bit. And they those patients might be better off um, with a JAK inhibitor. Yeah, I, I thought about that, Elaine. I think that um, the thing is with conjunctivitis, if you know that there's a history, um, I, I have started them on dupilumab. I've lined them up. I've made sure that they have therapy at home. And at the earliest sign, if it occurs, start off with treatment. And it's, it's not really been a problem. So I, I think it's something to consider. It might be why a family might choose to go a different direction, however, because we absolutely have not seen conjunctivitis at all with the JAK inhibitors, but we have seen some to a lesser extent, even with the other biologics. Thank you. Let's hear from Jeff and Yasmin. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me, at least for all these children, I, I think, again, based on experience and based on the, the time that dupilumab has been released on the market and FDA approved, and the fact that it's FDA approved down to six-year-old and up, I think that gives a lot of reassurance for both the prescriber as well as for the patient family to know that it's a very safe medication. We've had extensive experience with it. One of the longer term studies that really goes out to 70 some weeks um, have shown that dupilumab has long term you know, durability and efficacy. And even in some patients that start and stop dupilumab, so far, at least there hasn't been confirmative evidence of a lot of antibody formation. So I think that's also great in terms of starting and stopping a medication that's otherwise very safe. I do have to say that since dupilumab has been approved for children, I've given it more and more just because I presented as a very, I presented and I present the evidence that it's a very safe option and that, you know, parents can feel confident that especially right now during COVID, it's not immunosuppressive, doesn't make you more susceptible to severe infections. There's no lab monitoring, which all the kids are very big fans of. And the fact that there's both, um, there are two different mechanisms that you can get dupilumab, one of which you see the needle, the other one where you really don't in a pen format. So I think that can be very attractive for some kids who are, um, who are perhaps afraid of needles and something else that they want to try first. Um, and in terms of you know, in terms of how long do they have to be on dupilumab, which is a common question in starting and stopping it, there are some studies that show you can maybe go every two, every three, every four, every five weeks. Sure, there is a certain population that might find decreased efficacy, but perhaps some kids can do okay on every three or every four weeks um, of, the, of the dupilumab dosing. So in my book, at least, dupilumab is still likely going to be my um, first line if given the option. Um, unless there are significant barriers to getting this medication, as um, Dr. Powell and Dr. Sikri have already mentioned. You know, we didn't also talk about the potential for disease-modifying activity. And of course, that's going to take us many years and definitely a subject that needs, you know, further study. But it just seems to me, again, if you have a pure type 2 inflammatory, a patient with pure type 2 inflammatory disease, you know, heavily asthmatic and, you know, with rhinitis and, and conjunctivitis, that that early use of dupilumab, my gut feeling is that it may have better potential for disease-modifying activity than, than a JAK inhibitor. I, I was just going to ask, I don't have a significant experience taking people off of dupilumab. They've all been so happy going on it um, that they're okay just continuing it. Do you guys have experience of people coming off of it and whether or not it actually changes the severity of AD at the other end? 
I have yeah. had many people, but this is true of methotrexate as well. You know, I'd say, you know, after two to five years, about 50% of patients that I've treated with methotrexate can come off of it and their disease doesn't come back. And now I've had another, you know, smaller number, but definitely some so far that have had long-term remission, you know, after treatment for a couple of years with dupilumab. I, I've had experience where I'm able to, I can never predict what's going to happen. And, and I think that's why it's so important to go from your every two to your every three, to your every four, to your every five, to your every six. When I get to every six weeks, if they're still doing well after slowly going to that, uh, and by the way, by this time, they've certainly been on it for a good two years. Um, then I, I say, let's, let's see what happens if we stop it. Now, not a majority <laughs> get to that. Uh, and, and many people, of course, I have patients too, who uh, every two weeks is, is not enough. Um, and, and they break through even at, at 10 days or whatever. And I, I try to get it or, or whatever would be their standard dosing. I have to try to get it more frequently, but I have had some, I had one patient a, a whole year out so far and, and, and not. Um, but I do think that that's going to be an important question, Jeff, when we get down to lower ages. Right now, today, we're just talking about adolescence. Uh, and, and thinking ahead a little bit to, to the fact that these could be out just like dupilumab is now down to six and yeah. shortly will be down to six months. Um, I think there's much more disease modification possibility, just as we've seen with potent topical steroids and really trying to knock out that disease more quickly in those younger kids, um, especially before they start to get these other comorbidities or multimorbidities, as you might call them. Mm -hmm. And so in, in the situation where one of our patients is not doing well on dupilumab, is flaring, is breaking through, are, are you envisioning stopping dupi and starting the oral jack or continuing dupi, adding low dose um, oral jack or, or and increasing it? I mean, what, what, are, what are people doing or think they're going to do? I think it's an interesting question about whether there would be comfort with giving concurrently uh, a jack inhibitor and dupilumab at least for periods of time. Uh, and frankly, whether we can access that either because I'm not sure how many insurance companies are going to agree to give both to the same person at the same time. There theoretically could be some value, especially given the safety profile of dupilumab, to considering uh, for a short period at the very beginning, giving a JAK inhibitor, or if a flare occurs that doesn't is not responsive to a topical, considering that. Um, but if you're transitioning off of dupilumab to a JAK inhibitor, you might as well give a JAK inhibitor. I'm going to step back to say not everybody responds to JAK inhibitors. And I think we need to make that clear. There are going to be patients who um, don't respond adequately to JAK inhibitors, just as they are with dupilumab. Uh, and especially as dupilumab goes for longer periods of time, uh, we may see about equal responses to, to both. I have used in a handful of patients, I've added methotrexate to dupilumab suboptimal responders. And, you know, I, it doesn't always work either. <laughs> and, but I, I also think that you can talk about the theoretical combination, but in reality, as Amy said, 
you know, you're never going to get both of them because the expense is just too high. And I don't see an advantage to adding, for example, uh, a JAK inhibitor as compared to adding cyclosporin or adding methotrexate, you know, if they're going to use two drugs together. Well, I think one of the questions too, with, with the use of the JAK inhibitors is, is just the monitoring. And that's not to been defined. Uh, we know with methotrexate, we, we've come together, we've got some consensus guidelines on how often to get that monitoring. Will it be less uh, with, with the JAK inhibitors? Uh, we, don't, we don't have enough information to know if after the first, let's say two months, um, there's, enough, there's, a, there's a low enough chance of, of having, for example, a cytopenia, uh, or maybe the lipid abnormalities are, are primarily early or the CPK issue. Um, we need to really understand that better too, to even know if we do use them, how best to monitor patients. Yasmin, I think the cases in which the JAK could be considered were beautifully outlined already, and I don't have anything to add. I think it is interesting to see how many dupilumab, how many people have dupilumab waning efficacy. Um, the longer you have patients on it, the more I see that. So they actually had an excellent response initially, and then the, and then it wanes. And I've tried to recapture benefit, as Elaine said, with methotrexate. In some cases, it works, in others, it doesn't. So I think I really like to see when you switch those people to JAKs, which is what I do plan to do, switch them um, if they're of the age of FDA approval, which is 12 and older for upadacitinib whether they recapture benefit and for how long, or are they just a different kind of phenotype? So that's one thing I'm going to be looking at. Another comment I wanted to make that I think we alluded to, but I don't know that we really got into great detail was we have to remember what an impact this, this horrible disease has, has on people in this time in their life. So if you suffer from terrible atopic dermatitis, where we're going to consider the jack, and you're 12 to 18 years old, these are the peak years in which you need to interact with other people. And so, yes, we have serious side effects such as malignancy, thrombosis, and so on described in other populations, older populations, but you might want to still consider, I suspect that the kids with a very severe disease where they are unable to function, they're going to be willing to trade the possibility of risk tomorrow for quality of life today. Um, because having a terrible life from 12 to 18 has an enormous impact. So I do think that while we are going to have to think about how we express these potential adverse effects, we can't undersell what it means for your atopic dermatitis to be under control. And that seems to me to be more of a discussion that I have with the patients, even about dupilumab, trying to explain or reinforce to the family, like re the recognition of the suffering the child is having, having that needs to be placed front and center in any risk benefit discussion. So I just want to bring that, that back in. Yes, there are risks and yet we tolerate those risks in other diseases like arthritis, but we seem to not tolerate them in, in germ diseases. And I don't think that's right. I, I certainly agree. And I think that's an incredibly important point. Uh, and how many times have we had patients uh, who really needed to advance to a systemic medication and we didn't do it because of the fact that we were worried and we didn't really talk adequately with the parents or we couldn't convince a parent who all I could think about was safety issues and blood draws. Uh, and when we finally put that patient on, it's like, why didn't we do this sooner? And I think that with dupilumab, we've been able to feel very comfortable about ratcheting down the threshold 
for starting, but particularly for those who aren't doing well in dupilumab or for some reason would do better with an oral medication that works fairly quickly and, and reaches a very high level of efficacy, we do have to absolutely keep in mind the devastating effect in so many domains of this disease on our patients. And here we're talking about teenagers uh, and, and we, we all know the devastating long-term effect of even having the atopic dermatitis be severe for any period of time during that age range. Point well taken and incredibly well said. And I, I know that we're gonna maybe have a chance to talk about other diseases that are much more uh, aesthetic. And, and I don't wanna minimize the impact of aesthetics on um, you know, teenagers, but at some point, I, I would hope for guidelines about risking a drug with potential side effects like malignancy and in serious infection for an aesthetic condition, not one that is you know, in, interfering with your sleep or causing you know, mental health you know, morbidities, but one that is, I, I, I am particularly uncomfortable with a high risk medication for hair loss. Well, maybe this is a good transition um, to our, our next point of discussion, which is the potential use for these, um, for the oral JAK inhibitors in other um, skin diseases like alopecia areata, like vitiligo, wanted to hear about people's experience or intended, um, potential intended use um, of these agents. I have had limited experience with the use of JAK inhibitors for alopecia areata and vitiligo because of my concerns that we haven't had studies in these. Uh, and although I by no means minimalize the effect of these disorders on psychosocial development of our, our adolescent patients in particular. I do feel that uh, without some data about safety and certainly with new drugs in development that may be more specifically targeting these disorders and including topicals potentially for vitiligo, uh, that, that uh, I've just been sitting back a little bit. I've had a few patients who have come to me and um, just have had such a devastating effect from these disorders that I have started them. Uh, one boy, for example, with vitiligo, who was so depressed that he hadn't been going to school um, and similar situations with a few patients with alopecia areata. Um, and, and being on the drug and getting some good results did help to turn around their uh, psychiatric issues uh, and allow them to mainstream again. Uh, but I am, I am largely waiting to see what's going to happen. Uh, I, sh I should say too, I think it's intriguing uh, that, that there is some data about alopecia areata and dupilumab, particularly in the subset of patients with high levels of IgE, which overlaps with our atopic dermatitis patients. So I am uh, eagerly looking at, at that data as well. Uh, and waiting for uh, some new options for our patients that may be a little bit um, more targeted. Question. I, I got to say one quick thing about not being able to ignore disease severity. I mean, you know, you got life-threatening, you got cancer, you got rheumatoid arthritis, you got psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, and then the risk-benefit ratio for things that, you know, aren't life-threatening that in many people 
don't cause depression and, you know, people, you know, live with these things without it really bothering them, then you got to examine, well, why does it bother some people so much and not other people, you know, rather than just sort of throwing a very, you know, potent drug with high potential for side effects. At them. And, and the need to continue it life right. long in that right. situation. Yeah. What happens when you take them off of it? You know, <laughs> they won't stop it unless there's something else that's safer in its place. Well, I, I do have a question about this. Um, so obviously not all jack inhibitors are made the same, right? The, the experience that I've had with um, using jack inhibitors for things like alopecia areata has largely been limited to tofacitinib, which is not in the pipeline for development from what I understand for atopic dermatitis. And instead, we're talking about, you know, specific JAK1 inhibitors or patacitinib. Um, why is that? Why isn't, why isn't tofacitinib number one, you know, being considered for AD? And I don't know the data on this. Tofacitinib is not being considered for alopecia areata either. I mean, in both cases, the uh, pharmaceutical company that makes the tofacitinib decided that yeah. they wanted to develop um, new medications that were a bit more targeted by being more selective. But but uh, that, so wonder means, about the side that means that they're doing that studies change? with new yeah. agents that uh, ideally are a little bit more targeted to the pathomechanism of the diseases. And we're seeing some somewhat different directions for atopic dermatitis versus alopecia areata, for example. So therefore I'd be curious, you know, and I, and I think we keep talking about side effects, but I think from the studies at least that have been shown, there haven't been, you know, venous thromboembolism, um, at least in, in, in the studies with the, um, with the oral JAK inhibitors made for atopic dermatitis um, and too, probably too short to see for malignancy. But I think you make a really good point at the very beginning where we're talking about most of these side effects are seen in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which to our understanding is a quote unquote higher inflammatory state in the body than say psoriasis because of some of the concerns with methotrexate, for example, um, and, and then now atopic dermatitis. So I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I think some of these side effects are theoretical um, and I think really more needs to be said. So, and I, and I definitely bring that in with my counseling with patients as well. Right, and I don't think we can look at a patient who's uh, 65 or 70 years of age and at increased risk for all of these various issues right. and compare that individuals to an adolescent. So far with these various medications, uh, certainly the data that we've seen with um, these JAK inhibitors there have been a lot of zeros associated with all of these in, in the adolescent population. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for me, I'm going to be watching this very carefully. If, if they stay zero, when the population of people using this gets much higher, I'm going to feel much more comfortable about it, at least for the short term. Right. Uh, but that's all we've got for most of these drugs. Shall we hear, hear from Yasmin? Well, I feel like I'm the, the broken record in terms of the patient side of this, but I've seen enough adolescents that are, you know, suicidal or like will not go to school that I think I would give them a JAK inhibitor. I have two children on JAK inhibitors only for alopecia areata, but it strikes me for whatever reason that alopecia areata is more devastating sometimes it seems in my population than vitiligo, although that may just be because phototherapy and topicals are more effective than other things are for alopecia areata than, than drug therapy is. But I don't think we can discount, especially in that period of life, how important it is to have your hair. And so for that reason, I think that with shared decision-making with understanding of risk, I wouldn't hesitate to consider a jack at least, and but I really do read them the riot act in terms of the the risks, and I do think when we present drugs in general, we can 
we always present the same side effects, but the way you present them <laughs> and the way you emphasize the side effects obviously changes. And so with these so-called more aesthetic, but still critically important conditions, you may be really like tucking up the side effects more. And yet if they want to do it, I'm, I'm willing to do it. Will I be able to get it covered? That's a completely different question and generally no. Um, so I do want to see if they get approved, that will help a lot. If there is an approved Jack for alopecia areata or vitiligo, that'll be a game changer for actually getting the drugs, especially to our Medicaid patients. One thing that we didn't talk about that might be interesting, especially to hear what Amy and Elaine think is the topical or the concomitant topical use, because that is kind of intri intriguing using, let's say, dupilumab and then adding on topical ruxolitinib, which I know is not how not an on-label use, but I'm wondering how that might work and if that will plug some holes. You're talking and about for atopic dermatitis. Yes, I'm returning to the topic of atopic dermatitis. And we could also potentially think about for, you know, I've used alopecia areata, I've used the topical jack inhibitors off-label for alopecia areata, and I haven't seen enough people back to get a sense of it. But yeah, just seeing the combination therapy or just using the topical in some places now that at least we have a drug that's FDA approved 12 plus for atopic dermatitis that will lead to off-label use in other disorders. But I'm just curious whether that is going to help us or it's just not going to make much of a difference. That's what well, I'm- when, when, we add, when we add topical corticosteroids in studies with, let's say, whether we're talking about dupilumab or, or whether we're talking about uh, the jack inhibitors, we take the, the graphs and we move them up a little bit, 10 to 15% in, in most cases. Um, so even though these may not have been helpful on their own with patients and they had to move to a systemic medication, the combination uh, can actually give even better results. And I don't think there's been any experience with topical ruxolitinib uh, in, it's not been used in any of these studies, but I suspect it will do the same thing. I think it'll be interesting to see, particularly in our adolescent patients, how topical ruxolitinib versus topical steroid is approached and appreciated. Thank you for the wonderful discussion, the many points that you have brought up, the many questions um, for making us think about these really important issues that are so important for our patients. Thank you so much to our moderator, Dr. Manelli Liu, and a special thank you to our speakers, Dr. Paller, Dr. Siegfried, Dr. Kokorian, and Dr. Yu. This has been episode two. Be sure to listen to episode three, available now, to hear the group discuss the research still needed to better answer these questions. I'd like to take a moment to thank our program sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Regeneron, and Sanofi Genzyme. Pedra is solely responsible for all the program content and selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. To find more educational programming, please visit www.pedraresearch.org forward slash education or follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can also download the Pedra app by searching for Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance in your Apple or Google App Store. Thanks for listening.